You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Standing, please open your Bible to Psalm 139. Now, I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, Pastor. We are roaming through the book of Romans. We're studying through that wonderful book. Why are we turning to the 139th Psalm? Well, I'm going to share a personal word of testimony. As you know, we are in that section in the book of Romans in which the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit, speaks so explicitly about the wrath of God poured out against all ungodliness. Across our nation today, we are observing a special Sunday to remember the millions of children who have been senselessly, godlessly murdered at the hands of the abortionist. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And as late as midnight last night, wrestling with this whole issue and, and recalling as I studied through the book of Romans what God says so beautifully about the value of human life. God reminded me in prayer that if his preachers did not speak out against this atrocious act, that he would hold us accountable. And so I cannot be silent. This is not the first time that I've preached on this issue, nor will it be the last. And I want to share this morning perhaps um, a different aspect of the scripture as it relates to sanctity of life. We are going to be looking at the 139th Psalm. You have heard that often referred to as people have sought to give biblical definition to the importance of man. But I want to ask you to join with me in a scriptural study. In a few moments, we're going to be looking at the original language of the scripture to determine what God says about when he considered you to be a person. It will surprise you. And so, if you will, please, with your Bible open, Psalm 139, verse 17. And may I say, by the way, tonight we will be back in the book of Romans. Wednesday night we dealt with the revelation of God's wrath. This evening, the reasons for God's wrath. You will want to be here. It is essential to your understanding of Romans that you be here for the study this evening. Let's read aloud together, beginning with verse 17, Psalm 139, right down through the end of the chapter how precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Father in heaven, our prayer is that you would attend this study of your word this morning with a gracious moving of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, help us to understand that everyone is so valuable to you 
that were they the only one, you would have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Oh, Father in heaven, open our eyes to your word and then change us. Father, we want to make commitments this morning, decisions which will be life-changing. We do not want these to be wasted moments. And so we come before you hungry, Heavenly Father. We come before you in an attitude of reverence and of worship, asking that you move upon us by your Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, I sat stunned as I listened to a pastor pour out his heart. It was almost 20 years ago, but I can remember it vividly, as vividly as if it were yesterday. He lived down in Florida. His church was quite near one of the major state universities of Florida. And he was relating how he had received a phone call late in the evening, as is often the case. And the physician on the other end, a friend of his, if I recall, was much in need of his pastor. He said, Pastor, there's a young lady here, a college student who has attempted suicide. And we're wondering, could you come to the hospital? We, we don't know whether she's going to make it. She has drifted between reality and, a, and, and being in a comatose sit, uh, state for the last hour or so. And sometimes she, we, we think she's going to make it. And sometimes we're just afraid that she might die. She's requested a pastor. And could you come? pastor dressed, went down to the hospital, walked into the room where this young lady was and looked there on the bed, beautiful young lady. Over in the corner, two crutches, worn crutches. By the time he had gotten there, the doctors with their skill and God by his grace had brought that lady out of that deep comatose state and she actually wanted to talk. Her speech was slurred, but she wanted to talk. And here's what she told her pastor. She said, you know, I had to talk to you because this day has been the worst day of my life. It should have been the best. Today I enrolled at the university. But she said it was so hard. With, with those crutches, you see, my feet don't work. And, and she said, as I went from, from building to building and the the amount of material that I had to carry in my hands began to grow. She said, I, I fell, oh preacher, I fell more than once. It seems like I was just constantly falling and people wouldn't help me. They'd just look at me and I'd have to pull myself around on the ground because I, I couldn't bend over and the papers when they would scatter in the wind and she said I was hurting and I was determined for I had, I just waited several years to enroll in the university because I, I knew it was going to be a trouble but I was determined to finish. She said, after falling so often, I got to the end of the day and coming out of the administration building, a great flight of stairs, arms filled with material. There at the doorway, she said, as I was trying to go through, I fell one more time and books and papers clattered and blew down the steps and she said, my crutches went down the steps and people sort of looked and one or two picked up a paper or, or so and handed it to me, but she said, I was so humiliated so humiliated and I thought does anybody care for me and she said with reservation in my heart I gathered my things together and came to this room where I stay as as a student the one assigned to me and my belongings were there and she said I knew that 
in my belongings. I had enough pills that if I'd take them, I'd just die. And so she said, I, I took that overdose wondering, does anybody care for me? The pastor went on to say that not only was he able to share with her how God cared, but he was able to share with two other university students in his church for those two young ladies had come to his office the week before. They had said, Pastor, we're enrolling in the university. We're going to be freshmen, and we want you to tell us how we can be good witnesses on the campus. We want you to tell us how we can share the love of Jesus with other people. And those two young ladies, members of his church, lived just next door to the young lady who was in the hospital asking, does anybody care for me? There are all kinds of people asking that question, are there not? I think some of you this morning might be asking that question. Does anybody care about me? Do they know what's going on in my heart? Do they know how desperate I am? Can, can they see inside me? I think there are perhaps this morning some, some elderly people here, some of you who say, you know, I've, I've got it all together. I'm, I'm at sort of an equilibrium. I'm, I'm able to pay my bills. But suppose some of those few people who tend to my needs, suppose they abandoned me or suppose something happened to them or suppose I became ill or suppose it got very expensive. Is there anybody out there who'd take care of me? What's going to happen to me? Some of you high school students may be saying this morning, I don't know if anybody cares about me. What I want is someone to listen to me. I want to pour out my heart without having somebody say, oh yeah, here's the answer, hurry, go do it. I want somebody to know how deeply I am hurting. Does anybody care about me? I've got some good news for every one of you here this morning. God cares. Those are not empty words, by the way. I know you hear that smile. God loves you and so do I. God cares. And I know that can sound so empty if it is not backed up either with reason or with real life. And so with your Bible open to the 139th Psalm, we are going to be looking at one of the greatest statements in the Bible of God's care. God's care. As we answer this question, does anybody care about me? David the king, the psalmist, writes these words under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And I believe that you will see as we move through this study of the Scripture this morning that no one here this morning need leave without knowing God cares for you. May I suggest to you this morning that God cares for you throughout the entire span of your life? Let me say that again. God cares for you throughout the entire span of your life. I know that some of you think that God may have more care for people at a certain age than he does for others. And maybe you think, I'm at the age where God just sort of puts us on the shelf and, and he's not as attentive to me as he was when I was younger and there were my children and I had so many needs and so many things I had to do. But now that's all past and I wonder, does God really care about me? Does he really care about me? Some years ago, I bought an automobile because uh, supposedly that particular make of automobile was one of the most durable cars that could be sold. It was, a, it was a foreign make of automobile, and I'll not give you the name of it, but it was famous for its durability. I'll tell you one other thing it's famous for. It was famous for its salesman. You can't believe the salesman that I met when I went down to that agency. It was one of the most wonderful men I've ever met, kind, gentle, concerned, probably surrendered to go to the mission field at an early age. And, and thought 
that, um, you know, it would be better to meet me there and to discuss my transportation needs. But there he was, all smiles, open arms, and the more he talked to me, the more I liked that guy. I mean, he told me about his family and his church, and I told him about that. You know, I ended up wanting to take the guy out to eat. In fact, I thought about, you know, maybe we could have him over at Christmas time, or I'll, I'll send him a gift. He's such a, a wonderful person, and he extolled the virtues of this durable car, and, and it was a first-name basis, Tom. And, and uh, man, I tell you, I just felt so good. I had a lifetime friend until two weeks after I bought the car, and I called him back, and he said, Who? I said, Well, it's, it's Tom meant nothing to him. Tom who? Well, it's uh, Tom, Tom Ellip. You know, I bought that car the other week. Which car was that? My heart sunk. This man didn't care about me. You'll have to see our service representative. You know what? He was offended that I had a problem with my car. No one of those cars is so durable, they just don't tell you. Why, he said, our cars don't have problems. It's just a figment of your imagination. But if you think it's really got a problem, bring it down and see our service representative. Well, I was happy when I got down there because in the little coffee room of the agency, there was my lifetime buddy who looked me right in the eyes and didn't even recognize me. His care didn't last very long. Limited warranty and limited care. Well, I'm sure that's not true of everybody who sells automobiles. Some of you guys are seated right out here this morning. I love you. I want you to know that. It was certainly true of my friend, however, my supposed friend. I think there's some of you who feel that way about God. You say, there was a time when I think God cared about me. There was a time when I came to church and I felt like God was looking me in the eye and saying, you know, I want to meet every need that you have. I want to know you on a first-name basis, but something's happened in your life and you're wondering, does he even have his face toward me? Would he even acknowledge, if I called upon him in prayer in desperate need, would God even know my name anymore? David says, God cares about me throughout the entire span of my life. Look at verses 1 through 6. You know what David is saying there? He's saying, God cares about what's happening in my life right now. Listen to these words. Oh, Lord, you've searched me. You know me. You know my down-sitting, my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. Why, you have encompassed my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, you know it all together. You have beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. You know what he's saying? He's saying God cares about what's happening in your life right this minute. But there's more to it than that. Notice he goes on to say God cares about what's going to happen to your life in the future. Now, that's what's got some of you by the neck. You're wondering right now, is what I have written down on paper going to be enough to tide me over? Can I make it? Will my kids really care or will they abandon me? I hear those stories about other children and other people who get in some rather sorry situations and I don't want to spend the rest of my life pining away in some little secluded corner. I want to live and I want to be useful. Does God care about what's going to happen tomorrow and next year and in the next years of my life? Why, David says, of course he does. Look at the next verses, beginning with verse 7. Whither shall, notice the future tense, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy right hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and even the night shall be light about me, yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. God cares about what's going to happen to you in the future. But may I say this? David spends, I believe, some of his best effort under the leadership of the Holy Spirit writing about the fact that God has cared about me and you from the beginning. From the beginning. Notice those next several verses. You see, this is the issue of those who would say, well, abortion is a viable option. If you find yourself in difficult straits, if you judge that it's not proper or convenient for you to, to go ahead and to have this child, why, the abortionist would say, let us take it. It'll be no skin off your nose. It won't bother you. You'll suffer no ill effects. It doesn't bother God because, after all, that's not a person, that's just a fetus. That is just a life form. It's not a real person. Don't even think of it in terms of personhood. Just talk about it as a life form or products of the womb. Don't ever call it a person. Don't ever think of it as a person. It is not really a person. Some years ago, our Supreme Court of this nation passed in the Roe versus Wade judgment, one of the most tragic judgments, I suppose, that's ever been handed down. And it said, basically, you can have abortion on demand. Various states have various interpretations of that law, but it's interesting, and I think more than interesting, that, that children which could be prematurely born and born well and alive and be productive, if they stayed in the womb a little longer, could still be legally aborted, legally murdered. And here is the reasoning behind that. At the heart of the issue is this question. When does a person become a person? You see, if I can convince enough people that you are not a person until you see daylight, if I can convince enough people that you're not a person until you're actually born, or that you're not a person until the second trimester, and by the way, there, you know, those who deal with such things will tell you that you don't, you know, go the first trimester and suddenly a a quantum leap in the difference in the next trimester. I mean, babies just develop day by day. And we have used this trimester thing, I think, uh, as, a, as a false excuse, although there are certain indications. I have talked with physicians who say, you know, that baby's just growing until it is to be delivered. And, and we say, well, if it's there two trimesters, if it's in the second trimester, well, this is what's possible, you know, and this is why we can abort that child. When is a person a person? And that eats at the heart of this issue. That eats at the heart of those who would back off and look at you and say, you know, if you had never been born and were just being developed in your mother's womb and she just didn't want you, it didn't look feasible, I would have been happy to have aborted you. When is a person a person? Well, let's look at the scriptural answer for that, and I think we can stand upon it, don't you? Look with me beginning with verse 13. 
And what I want to do this morning is just as carefully as I know how share with you from the original language of this passage of Scripture what God is saying to us from the 139th Psalm. For thou hast possessed my reins. That word possessed is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It means you have created and therefore own. This word for reins uh, is a word which originally meant the, the, the kidneys, but actually it is a, associated with that which is essential in your being, and so it came to represent you as a person. And so what this verse says is, you have created me, therefore by virtue of creation you own me. I belong to you. Notice this next language though. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. This word in the Hebrew language for covering is a word which originally meant to entwine or intertwine or to weave. At the root of that word, you will find it means to fence in or to protect. There was a word which is used for building and intertwining or a woven protection around that child. He says, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. And you know what the psalmist is saying here? And let me park here just for a moment. He's saying that the mother's womb is to be a place of protection, not a place of devastation. The most unsafe place in the nation for a child right now is in the mother's womb. Maybe I can explain in this fashion. When a child gets up to a certain age and says, Mom, Dad, I want to go play, you say, stay on the block. You can play, to, you know, but just stay on the block on this side of the street, ride your tricycle or bicycle around the sidewalk, but stay on our block because we'll know where you are. You'll be protected. I won't have to worry about you out on the street. A little bit younger than that, the child says, can I go play? And the parents say, yes, but stay in the yard. Just be sure you stay in the yard. Don't go next door. Don't go across the street. Stay in the yard where I can watch you. A little bit younger than that, can I go play? And the parent says, yes, but stay in the backyard where we have a fence because there I know nothing will happen to you and I can watch you. A little bit younger than that, the child wants to play and the parent will put the child down on the floor of the house. A little bit younger than that, the child wants to play and the child plays in a, a play pen, just a protected, a fenced off area so the child cannot get into anything that would damage it nor can anyone come along and do something that would damage the child. A little bit younger than that in those infant days, that child is in a baby bed or a bassinet. And a little bit younger than that, that child is in the mother's womb. And David is saying the mother's womb is what God has created as a fence of protection for a real person. That's the mother's womb. You have covered me, he says, in my mother's womb, so I will praise thee. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid for thee. This word atzim in the Hebrew for substance means my power or all that my body is. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. Now notice this. And curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. This phrase which we interpret curiously wrought literally means when I, when I was, it, means, it refers to variegated embroidery. And so he's saying when I was fabricated. And notice he says when I was made in secret and curiously wrought. Now here he's not speaking about the mother's womb. He is speaking about the lowest parts of 
of the earth. He's saying, as I was even being fashioned prior to the time that my mother and father came together in the marriage act in the lowest parts of this earth, that is, out of the very substance of this earth, God knew every atom that would one day be joined together with other atoms to become me. God knew it before my parents ever even met. God could name everything in this world that one day, like variegated embroidery, would be brought together from the lowest parts of this earth and become the person called me. God saw me as a person when I was yet incomplete. That's what he says here. Thine eyes didn't see my substance yet being unperfect. And notice this, in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned. This refers to that growth, that development, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet, listen to this, there were none of them. They had not even been joined together. The mother and father had not come together. There had been no marriage act. But here he says, God, you knew it, and you already had me in your book. When does God consider you a person? He knows you as a person. He knows who you're going to be, where you're going to be, what you're going to do in this earth, how important you are to him. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary for you before your parents ever even met. That's how important you are to God. When is a person a person? God says, don't you tell me that that little child in the mother's womb is not a person. I had that child's name in my book before those parents or his grandparents or great-grandparents were born. That name was written in my book. Don't you tell me that person is not a person. A second observation. God's care for me. God's care for you exceeds the limits of my imagination. You may think that you can come to an adequate understanding of God's care for you, but I want to tell you something. God's care for you exceeds the capacity to imagine it. Notice what he says here in verse 17 and following. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them... They are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Some years ago, my wife and I, uh, after we were married, were uh, privileged to have a good friend who was in the insurance business. This friend said to us as a young couple, and I think it was good wisdom in what he said, he said, you need to take out an insurance policy on your household belongings. And he said... Um, uh, you know, this just covers everything. And I said, you know, as a young, naive uh, man just recently married, I said, uh, um, everything? And he said, this covers everything. Uh, a few years later, my wife glanced down and noticed that the setting had fall fallen out of the wedding ring. It was gone. And so, not to worry... We called our insurance man and um, reminded him that we had a policy and he acted as if the same guy that wrote the warranty on that car wrote the insurance on that ring. He said, didn't you read the fine print? Now, the problem was mine, not his. He said, didn't you read the fine print? It says everything is covered except the accidental loss of gems from their setting. Limited warranty, limited 
insurance. Limited capacity. And I want you to know something this morning. There is no exception clause in God's love for you. God does not say to any of you, I love you, I will care for you, except in this situation, don't bother. God's love for you exceeds the capacity of your imagination. Let me suggest another thought to you this morning, and that is that God's care for you, His love for you, is not in the least altered by what people think. I mean, human opinion, what other people think, has nothing to do with how much God loves you. I'm so glad for that. You know, um, in these verses 19 through 22, David says, there's some people who don't feel this way about me, God. They, you care about me, but they don't. How should, I, how should I live with those people? What should be my attitude? Surely you will slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect or a holy hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, I want to tell you something. Those whom I believe are pro-abortion, and that would include people, in my estimation, that are pro-choice because that still leaves abortion out there as an alternative, although they would say we're not for abortion in every instance, we're just sort of pro-choice. I believe that they are people who have risen up as an authority over God and said we will play God with this life. We will play God with this life. I believe this in regard to this family planning, uh, these Planned Parenthood uh, uh, organizations that are uh, bane in our nation which say, well, here are the alternatives, and by the way, we would encourage you toward this one. They are people who have risen up and said, oh, you've got a problem? Well, you've come to the right place. We're God. We'll handle your problem. Is it a little life form in you? Why, we'll take care of that. We'll make your life easy. After all, isn't your life being easy all that it's about? Now, in a little bit, I'm going to talk about the other side of that. What about the young lady? What about the parents of that child? But right now, let's just think about those who play God. Every once in a while, somebody says, Brother Tom, you are mixing religion with politics. I want to tell you something. Being against murder is not mixing religion with politics. And if it was... I would mix religion with politics. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I believe it is time we mixed our religion with our politics. That is, every, everything you believe ought to affect everything that you do. It ought to affect everything that you do. I was so interested in Colorado some, well, uh, over a year ago when we were having the presidential election. And I was so interested in seeing what happened in that election because on the same ballot in Colorado was the issue of state funding for abortions. And, you know, Colorado has had a reputation for having rather liberal kinds of political leadership in some arenas, although there are some men who are so wonderfully used of God in the political arena in Colorado. They're conservative and they are right in their principles, and I praise God for them. But by and large, the idea, in fact, coming right on down from some of our leadership is why you ought to get to a point where you have judgment about your life to the extent that you say, I need to get out of everybody's way and let others go on with a living and I'll just have my life terminated. Well, I was interested in noting that when that election took place, 
along with that voting on the abortion issue, the state funding of abortion, when they counted the votes, the state funding of abortion went down. In other words, it was not passed. And more people voted on that issue than voted in the presidential election. I praise God. It said, we care. It's interesting to us. And every once in a while, these people act as if when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've lost your right to vote, you've lost your right to speak, you've lost your right to say anything anymore. Well, I want to tell you something, folks. You have every much as right to say anything as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to espouse your particular principles in this free nation which God has privileged us to live in. And it's time that your religious convictions filtered through your politics and everything else in your life. People say... Why, that's an arena that you ought to stay out of, you preachers and you Christians. I want to tell you, God is in the life business. He's in everything that affects life, whether it be politics and government or whether it be something that happened on the table of an abortionist clinic someplace down some dark alley. One other thing I want to share with you this morning, and that is that human beings have such a cheap idea of life that they often think God's opinion is their opinion. And what have I said here? I have said on the basis of the authority of Scripture that God's opinion of you is not altered by any law that is passed. You know, somebody asked me the other day, they said, um, you know, what happens in a person's relationship with God if they just decide, you know, they're married and they don't want to live anymore together and they're just going to run off and live with somebody else and so they get a divorce? They said, what, what do you think happens there? And I said, well, I'll tell you what. The fact that some judge wraps his gavel and pronounces a decree doesn't send the angels in heaven flurrying through God's files changing things. And man's opinion does not change God's opinion. Let me just show you what man's opinion is. Let me just show you what man's opinion. When the children of Israel were coming out of the land of Egypt, they were attacked from behind by a tribe. The tribe uh, they were the sons of Amalek, the Amalekites. Why did the Amalekites sneak up on the children of Israel from behind? I'll tell you why. Because in the rear guard of Israel, there were the sick, there were the wounded, there were the elderly, and there were the newborn babes. And the Amalekites attacked attack those weak, helpless people. And you know what happened? God said this earth cannot tolerate that. And so right there, God prophesied, one of these days I am going to utterly destroy all the sons of Amalek from off the face of the earth. You say, dear God, that doesn't sound too loving. And God says, it is not loving to allow to remain on this earth people who say the weak, the sickly, the humble, the poor, the lame, the meek shouldn't live on this earth. And when we read in 1 Samuel that Saul came along, God said, Saul, you destroy them. And when he didn't do the job, God's prophet finished it off by slaying the king of the Amalekites. And God said, there, it is done. This earth cannot tolerate those kind of people who say certain folks shouldn't live. They should be preyed upon for our booty. You say, well, that should be a great lesson. I mean, after all, we'll never do that again, will we? Let me just leap over a lot of history that I could give you and tell you that in 1939, Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany, gave a directive. It was an order. It was an order for euthanasia. A lot of people are not aware of this, what he would call mercy killing. And the order in just the gist of it was as follows. The directive was sent to all of the institutions, the care institutions, 
And they were asked to submit back to the government offices a list of everybody who had been in those institutions for five years or longer and therefore could not work. And so this list was brought back. There was a team of psychologists who never sat down to anyone's knowledge and interviewed any of these people. They just sorted through the papers and decided who should live and who should die, and they were summarily killed. Now you say, well, you know, that sounds sort of... Uh, that's weird, but that was Hitler. I want to tell you something. As World War II began to grow closer, the list began to be rather interesting. You see, at first, the people who were killed were the aged, the infirm, the senile, the mentally retarded, defective children. But then in the throes of war, the list grew. It included people with epilepsy. It included, get this, World War II, uh, World War I amputees. If you lost your limb for your country's sake in World War I and could not serve in World War II, you were killed summarily. It included children with poorly formed ears. I mean, that's in print. Children with poorly formed ears. Children who chronically wet their bed. They were killed. And it was all based on the philosophy that the life that should be lived is what I deem to be a quality life, and if it doesn't measure up, then they don't need to live. You say, boy, I just praise God I don't live in Nazi Germany. 1982 in Bloomington, Indiana. A little child was born with Down syndrome. Some of you think in terms of mongoloid is of Down syndrome. Children live with Down syndrome. In fact, those people who are around them say there's no greater source of joy and love and pride so often. This little child had what was often a problem. It was a problem with the esophagus, which a normal surgical procedure could correct. Not an unusual surgery, but as the doctors and the parents visited about this child, it was deemed... Uh, expedient just to let the child starve to death, not to let the child live by virtue of performing that surgery so that the esophagus could, could be used by the child to digest food. But they said, look, I mean, this child may not live to a ripe old age anyway, and so this child was put over in a corner, the curtains were pulled, and that child didn't die in an hour or days, but for agonizing days, that child literally lay there in that bed and starve to death because some people said, we don't think it's important. You'll never amount to anything. Doesn't measure up. Our standards are higher. Nazi Germany? No. United States of America. And when you start reading things about that in the paper, I don't know what it does to you, but here's what it says to me. It says to me, dear God in heaven, when did we become the judge of who was important and who was not? Dear God in heaven, what will we do? Crying out, railing against you and saying, we are God and you just take your scripture and stuff it and we're going to do what we want. I want to tell you something. Elderly people, young people, you beautiful folks who are here with the CP and the other groups here that are in our church, don't you worry, God loves you. God cares for you and his care for you has nothing to do with what mankind thinks. He has established that he loves you. God's care for me is worth my unconditional surrender to him. The psalmist closes by saying, Oh, God, search me. That means sift through me with a fine-tooth comb like an archaeologist 
archaeologist sifts through sand. Try me, test me like you would test metal and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. Dear God, I don't want those thoughts. And lead me into the way everlasting. This morning, I got up and made a phone call to a dear friend of mine. I've only known him a little less than three years. It'll be three years this coming October. He's a physician. He is a woman's physician in Denver, Colorado. He is one of the most brilliant men I have ever been around and one of the most compassionate souls whose life has ever touched mine. He was chief of staff in more than one hospital. He was chief of his section there in the Lutheran Hospital in Denver, Colorado for a time. Admired, respected, often referred to in the larger circles of medical practice in that city. And so when we came back from Africa, my wife uh, went to his, his office and I went by to pick her up and uh, for some reason she was delayed, which is probably not unusual. And uh, I went inside and there was the nurse and the receptionist and the technicians and the doctor and my wife. And the doctor said, look, uh, if you'll just step into my office. And I stepped in and on the wall were his diplomas. And I was looking for some kind of open door to tell him about Jesus. And I noticed he was from central Mississippi. And I said, oh, you go to church back there in Mississippi? And he said, you know, it is no coincidence you ask me that question. He said, I have not been inside a church in 30 years, not inside a church building in 30 years. He said, as a matter of fact, my house borders your church's property. I see it. I see you every day. I have never been inside any church. He said, when I was a young boy, I stood during the imitation time of a Bible school and held onto the back of a pew and knew I should have made a decision, but I didn't. I didn't know what kind of decision to make. I didn't, and I have never been back since. God gave me the ability to share the Lord Jesus with him. That next Sunday morning, as the invitation hymn was sung, that man literally bolted down the aisle. He said, I couldn't wait for you to shut up so I could get saved. <laughs> and on Sunday night after church, over to his house, he said, I want to show you something. And he went back into his medical files, and he said, do you see this right here? He said, for many years, I was in the military, and I was out in San Diego. He said, do you see this? And I said, yes, it says here that you performed abortion. He said, abortion, I performed many abortions. He said, that's not what I want you to see. I want you to look at the date. And I looked at the date and was aghast. It was years before Roe versus Wade. It was years before the Supreme Court said it was even legal. Our government was paying this man and others to routinely perform abortions in military hospitals. And he said, I've done it. He said, oh, what do I do? What do I do? By the hundreds, what do I do? And I shared with him that God loved him. I said, you know, Mac, God loves you. That doesn't mean that this was right. Some of you young ladies say, I've done that and I live with it and it haunts me. What do I do? God loves you. And you know, he is, he, when he came to Jesus, he did a 180. He is now, across the nation, one of the most outspoken authorities in pro-life movements, anti-abortion movements. Tonight, tonight, he told me this this morning at 6.30. I said, Mac, did I wake you up? He said, if you don't talk too loud, you won't. 
his wife tonight is going to stand up in their church and tell about how God's put it on their heart to walk the sidewalks and to challenge these young ladies to think, to think. And beside her is going to be a young lady, baby in arms, the very first person his wife ever made met after that turnaround. And she said, think about it, young lady. Just think about it. Max said, now, he said, God's just shown me that when I get to heaven, I'm going to have the privilege of going to one and another and another and another of those people and saying, I'm so sorry, but I'm so glad Jesus' blood is enough to forgive. I'm so glad he paid the price on the cross of Calvary. Listen, God cares for you. He cares for you throughout the span of your life. His care exceeds your imagination. His care is not any way related to human opinion. And God's care for you, why, God's care for you ought to compel you to unconditionally surrender your life to Him, to say, Jesus, I give myself to you right now.